Hey guys, thank you for tuning in to the Risen Nation Church podcast. I pray that this message today impact your life and above all, draw you into a deeper encounter with Jesus. Go to, go to 1 Samuel chapter two. And before I do, I, I wanna honor a man that doesn't know me and his name is Damon Thompson. And uh, if Damon is watching this, I love you and I wanna meet you. Uh, just join in. If you don't know him, don't worry about it. Uh, but, but this man uh, has been impacting my life from afar, impacting our team. And this past week, I was, I was taking time to seek the Lord uh, about um, habitation and habitation ministries and um, something we really wanna do that honestly, I've, I just haven't stepped out on yet is we really wanna begin to build habitation ministries that we believe is going to spawn church planting all over the earth. Um, we, come on, Matthew. Gosh, I love you. Uh, <laughs> scared me a little bit. Uh, uh, <laughs> but I, I just, there is this, this phrase, and you guys know it very well because I say it all the time, but this phrase, houses of habitation, has, um, man, has been in my heart for so long of, uh, I don't, I don't want to just have one place that's beautiful. And we tell everybody, if you want it, come here. I want to go to the highways and the byways. And, and, um, yeah, if I keep going, I'll, I won't be able to recover. I don't know what's happening to me, but anyway, um, there is, there's leaders and there's pastors and, and I'm finding them all over the, the earth and in every state in every city. And I'm finding this cry of they want to escape the system, but they don't know how. And, uh, and so there's this mandate that God is giving us with Habitation Ministries, um, where I believe what God is doing here is the first fruits. And I believe one day we'll talk about this community that lit on fire and lit a nation on fire. And a nation started within a nation and, I'm, and it's not just us, it's, it's all over the world. Like there, I think anybody with any ounce of discernment knows that there is something coming. And I don't know how many of you went and saw the Jesus revolution. Oh my gosh. I wanted at the end, I'm, I told Emily, I said, I'm lighting everything on fire and we're going to a beach. That's my problem. My, my problem, and I love what God's doing here. My biggest, I'm just a huge pendulum swinger. So I'm like, beach services it is. Um, but we got to be careful that we don't try to mimic what was, right? But just this thing in me, I'm like, ah, the Jesus character from The Chosen is dope, you know? Um, and he was on dope too, uh, in the movie. But anyway, so there was one part of the movie I didn't like about the spiritual gifts, whatever, but, but it's fine the, the movie itself, like I went and saw it, we, Emily and I saw it and, and I probably cried five times and people are crying in the theater and I'm thinking, how do I say, God bless Greg Laurie, honestly, like God bless him, the salvations that have come through Greg Laurie, that whole, that whole world of Calvary Chapel. Um, I had the opportunity um, to know the son of the leader of Calvary Chapel and, and these men have touched the world. They've touched the world. Chuck Smith has touched the world and I really honor them. But I'm thinking, man, this lit sparks in people and salvations and baptism started happening. You start mixing that with some Holy Ghost power. You start mixing that with, with people getting healed and restored and demons fling and it being normal. 
but you can feel it. You can feel it in the air. And it's not just young people. Like I love Gen Z. I'm just tired of seeing posts about Gen Z because I'm thinking about the 80 year old that's like, I'm hungry too. And I've been stuck here for 68 years, right? It's gonna cover all generations. It's not just, now it might, sometimes it takes like one younger, like annoying generation that's like, yo, right? It's like the younger brother that pushes you and bothers you and pokes at you. For Costi and I, it was the other way around, but, but pokes at you. Sometimes it is the older ones that are poking at the younger ones, but there is something in the air and, it's, and nobody cares. I mean, at least I'm noticing that nobody really cares about massive churches and massive ministries anymore. Like people want to gather in homes. People want to gather wherever they can. There is a generation. When I say that, I'm not just talking about Gen Z, but there's a whole group of people that are going, we want God and we are done with normal, right? And you feel it. You feel it in the air. It's stirring, it's stirring, it's stirring. And I said it two weeks ago that it's hunting season on the complacent. And we got to stop trying to be careful not to offend people, right? Because nobody really cares about big church buildings anymore. Nobody cares. I don't know how else to say it, but, but God's visiting like 12 and 20 and 30 and little church plants that are going to be beginning that God will explode because of his presence, not because of anything else, right? And so I'm, I've been just anxiously stirred. Like I feel that, that Romans 8, 19, that creation is anxiously groaning for the expectation, the manifestation of the sons of God. And, and, you, can, and you can sense it. So I am I'm sensing this thing with Habitation Ministries and us stepping out and, and things that I think I've been, how do I say this, turned off by like the word partners. I just, can we just be real? Partners so I can have a mansion. Stuff you see in ministry that you just want no part of but you can't remove the revelation of God's looking for a generation to partner with him, right? And so things that God, I believe, wants us to step out on. And so I was spending time with the Lord and I'm saying, Lord, I need you to speak to me. And so I turn on this man, Damon, and I'm gonna get into, I, I believe that the Lord spoke right through this screen, through this man to this house. And I'm gonna, and I'm gonna get to it at the end in 1 Samuel 19, but I wanna bring us through Samuel's life because I think it's prophetic of this hour, okay? And there's this defining line of, of churches, communities, and individuals, and the line is those that know about him and those that actually know him. Okay, so are you guys in 1 Samuel chapter two? No, all right, well, hurry up, Matthew, or Adam. Anyway, so um, I know your voices. So just to give you context, before we start reading chapter two, you guys have hopefully read this story before. There's this woman named Hannah, and we hear a lot about Hannah, um, but Hannah was this intercessor. Hannah was like Pastor Costi said. Hannah was a barren one crying out for a son. And when God heard her prayer, God gave her a son, and this woman takes the blessing of the Lord and gives it back to the Lord, right? Such a secret in that. And we hear a lot about Hannah, but there's a man and it's her husband that loved her that you don't really ever hear about. And his name is Elkanah. And he would take his family every year, the whole family, and they would go to, to Jerusalem and they would sacrifice. 
And this was a devoted, devout, like this was a devout man who loved God and loved his family. And there was something about them that God just breathed on because even after Samuel is born, they give them, they give Samuel to the Lord. The Lord just blesses this family. And this family lives in a city called Ramah. And I want you to write that, that, that word down, Ramah. How do you spell it? All right. You spell it R-A-M-A-H. R-A-M-A-H. So he would take the whole family every year. He would leave Ramah, pay sacrifices, pay his vows to the Lord, chapter one says, and then he would go back to Ramah. So then you get to chapter two. They finally have this baby that comes through intercession. And Hannah in chapter two is is praying this prayer and she's exalting the Lord. And she's saying, my horn is exalted in verse one in the Lord. My, and then verse two, there is none holy like the Lord for there is none besides you. There is no rock like our God. And, and she is just exalting. She's glorifying God. And you get to verse 11 and it's important because it says that Ilkana, this is the father and his name means possessed by God. His name means possessed by God. And the word Rama is hill or high place. So this is a man possessed by God in a high place. He lives in a high place and his name means he is overtaken by the Lord. So this possessed by God man went back to his home on the hill and the boy, his, his offspring, his boy, Samuel, ministered to the Lord in the presence of Eli. Are you guys in verse 11? He ministered to the Lord in the presence of Eli the priest. And then go to verse 12 and it says, now the sons of Eli were worthless men. Wow, it's intense. It's a worthless bunch of people. People like leave and get offended over that, but it's in verse 12 of chapter two of 1 Samuel. Now the sons of Eli were worthless men, and I want you to underline, and they did not know the Lord. Worthless men, and what made them worthless was what they knew or the lack thereof. They did not know the Lord, underline it. So then between verses 13 and 17, it shows their sins. And these, these boys would uh, take by force the, the leftovers of the sacrifice and indulge themselves with it. They would eat with it. Later on, you hear about these, these boys would find women at the, at the court or the door of the temple and enter into relations with these women. And these were, uh, these were sons that were irreverent they, it was kind of like that entitlement of my dad is the priest and I can do whatever I want while wearing a priestly garment, even though you were not a priest, right? So they didn't know the Lord and the Lord has it in his heart to take them out. It's in there. You can read it. And, uh, and so verse 17 says, thus the sin of the young men was very great in the sight of the Lord for the men treated the offering of the Lord with contempt. Verse 18, then all of a sudden there's this change. In verse 18, Samuel was ministering before the Lord. Verse 17, again, their sin of the young men was very great in the sight of the Lord, for they treated the offering of the Lord with contempt. 
then a huge change of subject, but Samuel was ministering before the Lord. A boy, a boy, this is a young boy clothed with a linen ephod. I love this. His mother, I always like picture like Benji, like his mother used to make him a little robe. We should make Benji a little robe. My two-year-old. It's so sweet, a little robe and take it to him each year. And so I always picture like this little like toddler and he's in a robe and he's just ministering to the Lord. What an upbringing. We should all just put our kids in robes. Kind of feels culty, but it'd be cute. So (laughs) your kids all wearing robes. Yeah. They're priests unto God. Um, So listen there, he's wearing this little baby robe and, and he takes it and they would take it to him each year. I want you to think about the devotion of these parents, Ilkinah and Hannah. Like imagine you, like I think about my kids. Imagine we take William, Ellie, or Benji, one of them, and we say, this one belongs to the Lord and we only see him once a year. And when we do see him, we bring him the encouragement of keep ministering to God. You belong to him. That's every parent in this room, I think feels the weight of, that would, that would be a difficult decision. And so they would, they would come with this yearly sacrifice and with a little robe. Now go to, go to chapter three, verse one. We're just gonna go through his life super quick. It says, now the boy Samuel, this is chapter three, verse one. Now the boy Samuel was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli. And the word of the Lord was rare in those days for there was no frequent vision. The new King James says there was no widespread revelation. So hearing God's voice was rare, the Amplified says, and it was precious in those days, which the implication is, is he was not speaking. I mean, imagine like a famine of the presence of God is not there, right? So right after it says that that the voice of God was rare in those days, there was no frequent vision. At that time, time, Eli, whose eyesight had grown dim, So again, there's no frequent vision. And now you've got this priest who's become fat and he can't see, he lost vision. And he didn't bring the correction to his sons and we're not gonna read that part, but he was lying down in his own place, underline own place. Thanks for repeating it as well, but you could just underline it. (laughs) I like it, you guys are engaged today, you know? So his eyesight is dim. He lost vision. He lost his direction. He lost why he started and he just ate a lot. And he was fat and blind. Kind of like the church in the West today. Sorry, fat and blind. Okay. (laughs) And he's lying down in his own place, not in God's place, in his place. And then immediately, verse three, the lamp of God though hadn't gone out yet. I love that. Like I was reading this last night, I heard the Lord say, there's still hope. Like the presence of God, we might not be experiencing it the way we want, but he's here. And if we can catch the little light, man. So it says the lamp of God had not gone out yet. And Samuel, so remember Eli's in his place, but where's Samuel? Samuel's lying down in the temple of the Lord where the ark was. This boy is sleeping next to the glory of God. Imagine, little dude 
little robe, and he put his little bed next to God's glory. Then the Lord called Samuel rare. So the Lord's not speaking. You got a fat priest, a blind priest, and the Lord comes to a little boy. This is where we are. I believe it with all my heart. I believe our kids are about to start having dreams, visions, and, and, and things are gonna begin to take place and it's gonna come. And that's what I think I was so moved by the Jesus revolution because it's so true. The way that I believe God is coming is not packaged the way we think he is. So it, so it says, there's a little light left. Samuel's lying down in the temple of the Lord where the ark was. And the Lord said, Samuel, and he says, here I am. So he grew up and he had favor with God and man. And sorry, the Lord's doing something to me. We might just fall on the floor by the end of this. So just, if that happens, cost, just take over. Cool. Uh, he would take the place of Eli, right? He was literally raised to judge a political spirit and a complacent spirit. He's raised to judge Eli, the complacent spirit on Eli, and he's raised to judge the man-pleasing political spirit on Saul. And this boy turns into a powerhouse. This boy changes history. In the scriptures, he is the last judge and the first prophet, and he ushers in an, an era of kingship. This little dude became a man that when he would walk into cities, cities would tremble at his coming and saying, are you here for peace? Imagine that. You don't have an army with you. You're just super anointed. And cities are afraid of what just is lingering on you. So this guy is, because of his relationship with the Lord, Israel would win wars. They would come to him. All of Israel would meet him. So this was a famous, well-known guy that everybody knew. He would be the celebrity Christianity today. Not, a, not his own fault. Picked by God, right? But everybody knew who this man was. All of Israel would come to him. All of Israel. Imagine a whole nation coming to one person. A whole nation coming to one person and saying, we are afraid of the Philistines. Hey, Samuel... Do something about it. Samuel would say, let me pray. Because God's not talking to anybody, but he's talking to the boy. Right? So Samuel would say, let me pray. And Samuel would begin to pray and the Philistines would get destroyed. Imagine that when you're going to bed at night. Right? So this, this was a guy that even though there was consistent disobedience with the children of Israel, because of Samuel, there was constant course correction. And, and they would have, they, everyone would have known him. He was a big deal. Like I said, last judge, first prophet, and a priest. Where else do you see that in scripture? Judge, prophet, and priest. All a type and shadow we know of Christ. But then you get to 1 Samuel chapter 7. Go to chapter 7. There was a secret about his life that, that I discovered, again, through, through this man, Damon, that I, I want you guys to see. And we're going to get into something else. But chapter 7, let's start in verse 15. You guys there? Samuel judged Israel all the days of his life. And he went on a circuit year by year to Bethel, to Gilgal, to Mizpah. And he judged Israel in all these places. But then he would return to Ramah. So 
He would, he would do what God had called him to do, but he always went to the high place. Kind of like Jesus, right? He would go to every city. He would go into all their synagogues. He would do what his assignment was, but he would always retreat to a mountain, right? So he would constantly go back to Ramah, hill or high place, for his home was there. And there also he judged Israel. And here's important, underline this. And he built there an altar for the Lord. So what's it saying? He had a personal altar on a hill. He would go in circuits. He would do all of the stuff God required him to do, but he'd always go back to the altar that was on the hill in the high place. So this was an absolutely devoted man. I think it was something that, with, that he saw. I think it was something he saw with his parents, the devotion of a mother and father that give you to the Lord and then every year keep coming back to continually offer you to the Lord. Now you get to 1 Samuel 13. We're just, we're just gonna go through. 1 Samuel 13, Saul at this point had been ordained king. Saul makes his big first mistake. I want you to see something here. Chapter 13, verse 13. And Samuel said to Saul, you have done foolishly. Anyone remember when he did the unlawful sacrifice? We don't have time to read it all. I would encourage you to read your Bible sometime. It's a great book. So he, Samuel said to Saul, you have done foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord, which he commanded you. For then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. Saul, you could have been the first pick. And he goes on and he says, but now your kingdom will not continue. I want you to see the political spirit, right? Now your kingdom will not continue. The Lord has sought a man after his own heart and the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people because you have not kept the word of the Lord that was commanded to you. That's really intense, right? And Samuel rose up from Gilgal and the rest of the people went up after Saul to meet the army. And they went up from Gilgal to Gibeah of Benjamin. And listen to this. Here's Saul's response to being rebuked and God is gonna take your kingdom from you. Saul numbers the people that are with him and about 600 men. So listen, when you lose, and, and you have to watch out for these things, especially as leaders, when you know that the Lord is no longer present, you'll begin counting. When you know that God is not here, you'll start exalting numbers because it gives you some sense of worth because his presence is no longer identifying you. Right now, I want, I want us to really, I know we always have, I always say this, we're gonna have a real honest conversation. There's no other conversations here, hopefully. But the honest conversation that we have to have as the body of Christ and as the church is what exactly are we exalting? If you notice, today you go to places and they've got numbers on walls. And I, I am all for us knowing how many people got saved. I'm all for us knowing how many people got healed and how many people got baptized and how many this and how many this and how many people you prayed for and how many this and how many this. But when's the last time a church just said, he came and it was enough? Right Now, I know you guys have heard this, but I want you to hear it with new ears today that anytime God is not present, you will find communities exalting numbers and they need numbers to feel a sense of value. And God's going, where can I find my 12 to build my kingdom with? Because in Acts 19, Paul found 12 men and through 12 men, all of Asia, here's the gospel. It wasn't 12,000. It wasn't 1,200,000. It was 12 
They didn't, I mean, think about the power of God that he didn't need a million people to be commissioned to go to the nations. He just needed 12 and they, they literally got a whole continent, right? But because his presence is not here and we don't value his presence, which is more powerful than any plan, pattern, whatever we could come up with, any formula or solution, God's, he is the rain. We can't manipulate the rain. We just build the ark. We don't manipulate it, right? And so, so Saul gets rebuked and Saul goes, how many people do I got? And how do I keep them? Because God left me, but this feels good. There's, there's people still, I got a whole nation still here. So then go to chapter 15. You know, we don't have, I, I want to read the whole chapter, but we can't. We don't have time. I'm just going to give you context, okay? Promise you'll study on your own time. Saul's, listen, his last mistake is he keeps the best spoils from the battle, okay? He's commanded by God through Samuel, utterly destroy them, utterly destroy the enemy. And he, and he refuses, and so what he does is he, he destroys all the stuff that isn't valuable to him, but they keep the best spoils for themselves. Samuel grew up watching the sons of Eli do the same thing. Right? So now you get to this point in Samuel's life where there's a king over a whole nation that he anointed. And Saul keeps the spoils, the best of the spoils for himself. This is how sometimes I think we give to the Lord, how we budget him into our budgets, you know? We give him kind of the leftover after everything's taken care of. I would say build your budget around him and everything in your life will change, Right? But he, this political spirit, after Samuel comes and corrects him one last time, you guys remember he rips, the, he rips the garment of Samuel. Samuel says, just as this has been ripped, God has ripped the kingdom from you and he's going to your neighbor. And jealousy and devils enter into Saul on that day. And the political spirit rises, listen, up in Saul. And if you just read chapter 16, he gets to this point where he gets rebuked by Samuel. He doesn't say, I repent. He goes, okay, I sinned. So he said, okay, I sinned, but just honor me in front of the people, right? Return, he says, return with me in front of them and then I'll bow to God when they're looking. Think about it. That political spirit that, that isn't ever, it's not, it's using God's language but your heart's far from him and your value is only based on the image you can keep in front of people, right? So this is all over Saul. Samuel is disgusted. Saul was a man that was only interested, I heard it said this week, he was only interested in looking right with God, not actually being right with God. And then you got a man like David who when he sinned, he wouldn't, he forgot, he said, forget the people. When he sinned, he said, create in me, God, a clean heart. And may your presence not depart from me. Heart after God. So Samuel is disgusted and he's done. He's just done. He's done with the political system. And in chapter 16, 
he anoints David. We don't have time to read it, but he anoints David, takes his horn, anoints David, the next generation. And once and for all, it says in verse 13 of chapter 16, that Samuel rose up and went home. Everyone say went home to Ramah. It was like Samuel got to this point of, I know that I'm famous in this nation. I know that this nation needs me, but these, but I can't take the system anymore. So I'm going to go and live for the remainder of my life on a high place. And Samuel, listen, he leaves the system, that political system of the day that was masked with spiritual language and spiritual activities. And David himself, after he's anointed, gets sucked into the same exact system, yet it's ordained by God, but he won't stay long. It becomes a school for David of, is this what you want? He gets spears thrown him, all this stuff. We know the story well. And a system that once loved him and cried out, Saul killed his thousands, but David, his 10,000s, begins to hunt him because he began to poke at it. He began to disrupt it. I, I, uh, I heard somebody say, people might be offended at this, whatever, but I heard somebody prophetic say that they had this, this vision uh, when Donald Trump got elected that he had a stick in his hand and he was poking at this snake inside of a basket. And, you know, the man's personality he could work on, but he did that with all of us. This is what I think needs to happen in the church is courageous people beginning to poke at the basket of religion until the snake dies and pops its ugly head off and we can cut it off. Okay. So now, chapter 19. You guys doing all right? I'm being tested by the Lord right now because I am hungry. So, uh, yeah. I always rebuke people for like wanting to go to lunch and the Lord's like, how about you right now? Uh, anyway, First Samuel 19, let's start in verse 18. This one I wanna read and I wanna slow down. So you guys remember, David now is, is being hunted by the very system that at one time loved him, right? And he has to flee. And so he finally flees permanently from Saul in chapter 19. And where does he go? David fled, this is verse 18, David fled and escaped and he came to Samuel at Ramah and told him all that Saul had done to him. So this man, Samuel, would have been a father to David. Samuel would have been the one that David knew it was through this man that I was anointed and he had a relationship with Samuel that he knew I can go home. He knew at any moment, I could go, see, I, I, this is real to me because I've experienced this in my life. When I was going through the hardest season in my life, I could always go, my dad was more than my dad. He's my spiritual father. So I could go to him at any season in my life and I knew I could always go home on this high place where he lived. And I could tell him everything going on in my life. And I love this. And it says, and Samuel went and, and took David. He and Samuel went and he lived with him at Naoth. Naoth means habitations. This, this is what Damon said to me. And I, so you guys know, we're going after house habitation. I'm like, Lord, give me direction. And this man is like screaming, crying on a stage. Just look him up. He's incredible. He'll really poke at you too. It's great. 
And I am hearing the Lord speak about this whole thing is about high places of devotion where we're gonna build habitations for God. People that have exited the system once and for all. And what's gonna happen is it's gonna be an environment conducive for raising kings. So it says that he said to Saul, so they went and they lived in the high place where the habitations were. And it was told to Saul, behold, David is at Naoth in Ramah. Then Saul sent messengers to take David. And when they saw the company of prophets prophesying. So think about this. This man goes from leading a whole nation to just finding a group of crazy prophetic people and building a habitation on a high place. All right, so he's, he's with his group of prophets and he's building a home and they're becoming the habitation of God. And it says, so when the, this company is standing there prophesying, it says, and Samuel stood among them as head over them. So there was order in this house. And it says, the spirit of God came upon the messengers of Saul and they started prophesying. So anywhere there was a high place of habitation, everybody that got close to it got engulfed in the environment that was created. And this happens three times. And so then he himself, after the last time, this is the third time now. Actually, this would have been the fourth time. Then he himself went to the high place. That's a mistake, Saul, because you'll be judged at where real devotion is. And he goes to Ramah, and when he went there to Naoth, I love that the scriptures, I'm, I'm really learning something more than ever in this season, that I know we say it, but really there's nothing just in here. There's no like pointless information. There's not one word. It says not one dot, not one dot can be taken out of the scriptures. Wow. One little comma, tot, tittle. I didn't want to say that because I'd afraid I'd say something else, but... But you guys know that verse, right? That not, <laughs> Cossie's last right. In our language, not one little parenthesis, not one little comma, not one little period is just there haphazardly. But they put the names of the cities and there's something I want you to see today that, the, that anytime there's a name in the Old Testament, it's not just an identification. Anytime you see a name in the Old Testament, like God would say Abram to Abraham, and he would change the course of his life through his name, right? From Sarah, Sarai to Sarah, change the course of, of her whole trajectory of her life. From Ben-Onai to Benjamin, like Jacob knew, God changes names, I can change names, and we're gonna create a whole nation. God said, Jacob, Israel, he experienced it in his own life, and then he gave it to the next generation. Like there's, there's nowhere in scripture that they're just gonna put Ramah on, it doesn't mean anything but we just kind of read with the veil over as some city, but it's all speaking. The veil has been lifted and it's all speaking, right? I was thinking about this today. It's like, okay, when I say Katrina, if I was to say Hurricane Katrina, what do you think about? Immediately, everybody just thinks about the devastation that happened in Louisiana, right? You're not thinking of some girl named Katrina, 
You're thinking of an experience. You're thinking of, of what is pregnant within that name. We're not going, oh, Katrina. We're going hurricane. Right? If I was to say Michael Jordan, at least the dudes are thinking Air Jordan, most of us, the one we grew up on. We're not going cool name. It's what's in the name. It's what comes along with the name. Are you following me? So, so and we're going to get to that later, but, but nothing's just in here. So, and you've got to see what it, it means in Hebrew. So he's literally saying that Saul shows up to the place of habitations in the high place. And Saul's got no shot there. And, and he went there and the spirit of God came upon him also. And as he went, he prophesied until he came to Naoth. He just got in the vicinity, just the vicinity. And he went and he prophesied until he came to Naoth in Ramah and he too stripped off his clothes. Now the implication is sometimes we all are like, you know, he was the only one naked. Based on what this says, apparently all these dudes stripped off their clothes because he also got naked and started prophesying like his own shame. And I think what the scriptures are actually showing us is that it's at high places of habitation that God begins to expose the things we're trying to hide, right? The things that we're trying to hide with our big system and program, God's going, it ain't working in the environment that I'm in, right? And so these dudes, a lot of dudes, naked, prophesying. The Lord's like habitations. That's not gonna be here. I'm down with them coming in and getting engulfed in the environment. Just keep your clothes on. So, or Tanner and we'll make Harry take you out. I would enjoy seeing that. Anyway, let's move on. Let's turn that page. <laughs> so listen, listen. It's time that we exit the system and go back, listen to the high place that we first built with him where our first altar was. That altar that we left and we started building more altars and thinking it was our progression in ministry. And what's gonna happen is there's gonna be environments that are gonna overtake those bound in a political spirit, that are bound in a religious spirit, those that are bound by devils. And David, a king, a king in training finds refuge in these habitations. I was reading this and I'm thinking about my kids. We have no idea who we're raising. I got to really honor my wife for a second. She's going to hate every second of this, but I don't care because I have a microphone. She was invited to speak at a conference. Now, do you know how many people want to speak at a conference? And she was grieved in her heart because she wanted to do it. She wanted to fulfill the request. She's like, my priority right now is to be a mom. And I'm pregnant with four. The fourth, not four. Oh, God. No, don't, don't cheer over that. Stop. It's not going to happen. It's not going to happen. The Lord loves me. It's not going to happen. So you imagine? <laughs> I, I just, I meant I'd act excited. So anyway do a post. Anyway, um, 
love kids, just not eight of them in my house. So, <laughs> but she came to me and she's like weeping. And she's like, I just, like, you know that you're allowed to say no. Like when, when a, a magazine comes and they want to do a, uh, like, you know, how many times, like Charisma Magazine, I want to do a thing and we're going to talk about what's happening here. Or, or the, the news outlets want to come. We want to, we want to see what's happening here. You can say, there's a generation that's going to say, we don't want it. And now I'm not, I'm not talking about we love the people that invited them. And, um, and I offered Kaylee without even talking to her yet. So we'll talk though. We'll talk. And you can say no too. And I can tell them she said no. So anyway, but, but, there's, <laughs> but there's something, listen, there's something to, there's a generation that's getting their priorities straight. Saying, I know I could probably go and do this conference and get that feel that a generation wants, but there's something beginning to come into a generation that has no desire for anything. But what season does God have me in right now? And I'm gonna build a high place for four kids. That's where I'm at right now. People think sometimes I'm like, stay there and be quiet. No, no, no. I think we all can learn a lesson from this woman right here. A lesson that says, I am not in a rush. I'm not gonna be tempted with the with all the, the pressures of today that I've got to stand behind some pulpit to get value and worth. The greatest season of my life is the one I'm in right now where I'm raising kings and queens inside of my household. And somewhere along the way, religion said, come on, you need to get out there and, and get your calling, mother. You don't have to stay home. Shut up. Sorry. Like, the greatest calling in life is to be a mother and be a father. The greatest thing we could ever walk in, the greatest authority, the greatest, you want to experience God? Have some kids, man. Sitting around a table like we are last night and we're talking about what is the gospel and our kids are responding, Jesus died and took away sin. And I'm thinking to myself, this is more valuable Saturday afternoon than what I will ever do on a Sunday morning. And there's this, there's this thing inside of people that are not interested any longer in the program because we want to raise up some kings inside of households that are going to look at you and say, I always know I can go home. So David, listen, Samuel left. He left the big thing. He left it behind. And I feel like we've got to leave it behind. We've got to leave the ambition behind. We've got to leave the ambition to be the next whatever. Just leave it behind. If we, if we decrease to 100, praise God, just leave it all behind. Leave everything behind because what's going to happen sooner or later as our hearts stay devoted in the high place is kings in forms of toddlers are going to walk through this door and 20 years from now, we're going to say, we're so thankful we didn't sell out for the system. Because we all want to be used. We all want to be on, on it's, it's become about numbers because God's presence left. So now we need Instagram to give us worth. And we can pair against one another. And we think surely God's there because there's a million people. I think God is starting to visit homes with families of three and four. He's going to show up in living rooms. If you think that, listen, I know everybody says God said, but I actually think we're in a day where the word of the Lord's rare. I, sorry. 
Because we would see so much more power if we started using the name correctly. I, I asked the Lord, like, why are we not seeing what we want to see? And everybody's got a plan and everybody's saying God gave them the five years. And I'm thinking, this is so not God's nature. But we're in a day where, okay, I know God speaks to everybody. I felt it. People are like, oh, he talks to me every day. Fine. He actually speaks to me all the time too. That, maybe that was the wrong way to say that. But I will say there is a generation famished for the presence of God. I will say in the West, it's rare you go into a house, a church, community, you get around people that you feel the tangible presence of God. That's rare. You would agree with that. So I believe it was during that time that David would have got a glimpse of what could happen if a whole nation became an environment like this. I think it was during that time in a father's house who left the system that he was given permission to dream, that he would have been given permission while he's getting hunted by the system He's being given permission to dream. And I think that that thing inside of him that started happening in Bethlehem when he was a kid of, I want a house for God. I think he started seeing it with Samuel. I really do. I think he started seeing, man, these people are in order. These people are in the high place of devotion and they're building habitations for God. I'm gonna do that when I sit on that throne. We're gonna do it in a whole nation. And I think that this king was raised in this house. However long he was there, and so I've asked the Lord, what does it look like practically? And I'm, and I'm guilty. I am guilty of, of, Lord, show me the structure. Show me the pattern. Maybe, maybe we go to homes and, and that'll be living, leaving the system. Or maybe we meet in the outdoors. Like this is stuff I'm just bringing you into sometimes my thoughts. Maybe we go to the outdoors and that will be better. Oh, I got it. Listen, well, Asbury, they had an extended meeting that didn't end. So let's just do that. Maybe that will work. Maybe if we just sit in a room for 16 hours, maybe somehow the Lord will be impressed enough to actually come. And I, and I think in some ways, you know, some expression will probably satisfy people, but all it proves is that we worship environments, we don't create them. And, and listen, it'll only be so long before another generation comes along and thinks that what we're doing is outdated. It's a cycle that does not end in the church. And there's a need for revival generation after generation because we just started doing the same thing, thinking in the same processes. And there's only one thing that it never becomes outdated and it's called his presence. And so it's, it's, I asked the Lord, why are we not seeing what we wanna see and what happened, Lord, to all the miracles and, and all these things you read about in the book of Acts or in all these moves of God and in all these revivals. I mean, even in my uncle's meetings, 40 wheelchairs on a stage just to flex at what God's doing. Growing up, it was like tumors falling off people's necks. I've seen this stuff. I'm saying, Lord, what happened? It sounds good. I'm not just talking about here. I'm, but we have the best sounding worship in this generation we've ever had. Anyone listen to the worship in the 70s movie? No, thanks. Love song. It sounded terrible. Maybe some of you ones that are in the 70s are like, that was the sickest thing we ever heard. It's fine. It's not my cup of tea. And we just kind of go through these things where like in the 90s, everyone was into trumpets and saxophones. 
Remember that season? If you grew up in the church, you do. Now it's like electric, 15 electric guitars and cymbals. And I like it. And it sounds great. But as like, it sounds better and better, I almost feel like we're losing a sound. Because it's become more about the environment and the sound. So I'm asking the Lord, what happened? And I hear the Lord clearly and quickly speak to me. Your generation worships environments, not me. Just like that. I hear the Lord clearly speak quickly to me. And this is why we've experienced this as risen nation. I'm talking to us now. We've experienced this as risen nation where we would go from a coffee shop and it would be amazing to then we go into a building and everyone changes how they worship. So then you go into a house and you don't want people next to you to hear you, so you change how you worship. You're not gonna jump and scream and be foolish like you will at an altar because you're in a house now. And you're not actually worshiping Jesus, you're worshiping what you feel in a room. And we think God's here, but really just people are loud. Right? Now I know that God is authentically here, all of these things, but, but how many of you raise your hand if you believe there is more? Okay, so it is worth the conversation. It's worth the conversation that maybe, just maybe, he's not wrong, we are wrong. Maybe, just maybe, it's not on his part, but maybe just 10% could be on our part, just maybe. And everybody's offended at me because I'm mean. What if we love people enough that we gather inside of rooms and say things that actually poke at that thing inside of you, the seeds of religion and the seeds of the political system. And maybe you would hear fathers saying, come out and let's go to a high place together and let's build habitations for God. And there's nothing practical about it. There's no system. There's no formula. You know, people are like, let's exit the Sunday morning church. It's not about the Sunday morning building. It's about our hearts. It's about our hearts. It starts, listen, build an altar alone with God. We've heard it so many times, but I think if we took a tally truthfully and honestly, how many of us are building an altar with God? Not around our schedule, but our schedules around that altar, it would be devastating in the church. How many people just show up and want something from God, never giving anything to him Monday through Friday. Like, let, let's just talk honestly. It's not complicated. Revival is not gonna come because we come up with some innovative idea. It's, it, and it's usually why it happened with the hippies in the water because they don't have any innovative ideas. They were on drugs two weeks ago. They don't have the brain capacity to think of a building plan. They don't, they don't have the strategy to raise money. They're not structured enough in their own lives. They're doing good to have a job. And God's just like, I don't need anything from you other than your offering. Just come to me, dirty, messy, the way you are, unpolished, real, authentic, and what will happen inside of a room when a bunch of messy, potentially pretty confused group of people but we're not confused about this one thing. We want him and we won't stop until he comes. And I'm telling you, people are like, surely it's, it's, surely it's more complicated than that. No, it's not. Every revival, if you just read back to them, like there was nothing William Seymour was doing 
that would cause God to be like, man, he's got quite the plan. When man started building a tower called Babel and they were good at it, God said, get rid of it. And I think we've got a lot of towers of Babels and they're phenomenal plans and we can get people, listen, we can get people in unity with vision around one vision and everybody will give to it because it's, I can control it because I understand it. This is where we're building 10 years from now. You don't know what you're building for 10 years from now. The scriptures are like, don't say that you're gonna go to this city and do that and you're gonna go here and do that. Say if it be his will. You can make your plans all you want, but God ordains the steps. So what if, what if we've been aiming here and God's like, look at me, look at me. It's not gonna come polished. It's gonna come messy. And, and, and we are trying to figure out like, what is the package Right, I was talking to Jonathan Landis and I were having a meeting. Like, we're like, I'm trying and I'm getting like corrected by God of like, you know, what is, how do we package it? And I think that there is, you know, there is something to be said about, there is something about us scribing in a way that, and, and I'm not against social media. Pastor Kaylee said it beautifully the other day in SOH that I think social media in many ways is now like modern day evangelism. And it, and it can, it can reach the world and it's beautiful, but I'm not talking about, the package, I'm talking about our hearts. What does it do to you when you get likes? And, and what does it do to you when, when people begin to follow you? And what is the motive behind why you're doing what you're doing? But, but we're so focused on it. Okay, we got to change the package. What it, maybe if we exit Sundays and go to homes, maybe he'll come then. I don't know about you. When I get an Amazon package, I throw away the package and I keep what's inside. Some of you weird people like the watch unboxing videos. I'm like, you might have an idol in your life, right? <laughs> Joey Blodgett, he loves unboxing videos. So funny. He always is like, bro, do you, how, did you feel how it opened? I'm like, I just want the package and that's inside. <laughs> and anyone ever gotten like an Apple product? You're like, it's, it's seductive. It's like demonic. Like, like it feels so good when you open it because... They want you to keep coming. And, they, and that's what we've done in the church. We polish up the package. It's so beautiful. It's so wonderful. And we never get to what's inside. Give us another box. We're like kids that want to play with the box. I'm like, there's a toy inside of the box. Christmas day is a frustrating day for me as a parent when you have toddlers. So I'm like, I just got you 63 toys and you're playing with the box over here. <laughs> and every time I'm like, see, we wasted money on 62 things. <laughs> uh, we throw the box out. It's just wasting space. And we're trying to polish up the box. We gotta get rid of the box. We gotta stop trying to figure out where we gather to have God's presence. His presence is in you. All right. Can I have the worship team? I don't know if I'm gonna be able to get into all this, but I didn't get through half of this, but we'll do like just two things. You guys okay? You got anywhere to be? I'm hungry too. Let's just be hungry together, all right? We're almost, we're almost gonna eat, but let's eat him, of him first. So there's a defining line, and I want you to maybe write it in your notes. Put a line, and on one side put knowing him, and the other side put knowing about him. Because the sons of Eli, listen, it says they did not know him, and immediately it identifies a boy sleeping by an ark ministering to God. They did not know him, but immediately there's a boy 
sleeping by an ark, ministering to God. Paul would say it like this, just write these down quickly, Philippians 3, 7 through 11. Whatever gain I had, I counted, I counted it as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count as everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and I count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Listen to this, that I may know him, underline the word know, and the power of his resurrection, and that I may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. There's two Greek words for the word know. One is oida, which is O-I-D-A, oida. It's used 318 times in scripture. And that word know is to have knowledge of or see something. It's a fact. It's like a scientific fact. That knowledge is I know about the moon from what I've seen in a textbook, but I've never actually experienced being on the moon, right? It's, I know about Abraham Lincoln, but I ain't ever met Abraham Lincoln. So my knowledge of Lincoln can only go so far because I never actually knew him, right? But then there's another word and it's called ginosko. It's G-I-N-O-S-K-O. G-I-N-O-S-K-O. I want you to study this word. This is used 225 times in scripture and it means to know by experience. It's, it's to feel for, it's to feel the knowledge yourself. It's to actually encounter the knowledge. It was a Jewish idiom, listen, for, is there any kids in here? Probably, I don't know. It's, it's a Jewish idiom for, intercourse between a husband and wife, right? It's, it's that word gnosko that in Matthew chapter one, when it says, Joseph knew not Mary until after she had Jesus. It's a very intimate word. And the scriptures, again, nothing haphazardly there. The scriptures are very clear with when it uses gnosko and when it uses oida, and so one is factual, just write this down. One is experiential. One is you read about it somewhere, so you gained knowledge. The other is that you yourself became fully acquainted with that knowledge. That's why I struggle with these people that try to keep you from feelings and experience because they're teaching you about God that you can't actually encounter. And, it, and, and it's so against, if you would actually study the scriptures, and not your Bible university school that created a doctrine around your lack of encounter, right? We would actually have a God that we can see, know, and handle with our hands. 
They, they, there's no witness the disciples had other than them who they have seen, heard, and handled with their hands. That's why the scriptures say that we have to discern through our senses how to discern between both good and evil. In other words, discerning between when God is present and when God is not. I don't know about you, but this place has ruined me in a sense of that it's very clear when I'm not here and I know, wait, this doesn't feel the same. And I'm not talking about the way worship sounds. I'm not talking, Lord knows about the preaching. We know it's not that. We, it's, it's not about anything other than there's this mark here called experience. And you learn that mark like a husband learns a wife. There's, there's birthmarks in certain areas that only a husband should know about a wife. And vice versa. It's why I know that this is a really poor example, but when you, know, you gotta, God forbid, identify a body, you have to come to somebody that knows them really well. Because there might be one mark here, one, yeah, that's them. So one is something you saw, you read, and you gained knowledge. The other is that you yourself became acquainted with it. John 17, verse three, just write these down. He said, Jesus said this, this is eternal life, that they may gnosko you, that they may intimately know you. Not about you, but that they might actually know you like a husband knows a wife. John 10, three through five, it uses this word again. To him, the gatekeeper opens, the sheep hear his voice and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he, listen, has brought out all his own, he goes before them and the sheep follow him for they know, there it is again, for they gnosko his voice as they've been intimate with him. The stranger they will not follow for they will flee from him for they do not know they have no gnosko with the enemy. Verses 14 to 15, I am the good shepherd. I know I gnosko my own and my own gnosko me just as the father gnoskos me and I gnosko the father. I lay down my life for the sheep. Here's what's wild. The word name at its, at its root is not just identification, but the root word in Greek of name is gnosko. So gnosko is used, John 14, 14, whatever you ask in my name. It's why the Old Testament, the psalmist in Song of Solomon, he would say, your name is like oil poured out. It's not power in the name Jesus. There's people named Jesus. It's not, there's Yeshua. You can name someone Yeshua. It's not about just something we say. It's what is pregnant inside of that name that has pierced you with this thing called Gnosko. Whatever you ask in this encounter, it'll be done for you. How many of us are just asking because we want something from, but we have no gnosko with God. We have no intimate encounter with God. John 14, 26, and the Holy Spirit will be sent from the Father. Man, I feel the Lord. From the Father in his name. There it is again. The Holy Spirit is gonna be sent in the gnosko he has with the Father and he will be comfort to you. Verse 17 we know him. It says that you know him. 
that you already have gnosko with him. Jesus is saying that because he's standing in front of them and saying, as you've been intimate with me, you will be intimate with him. Now don't get weird. Just feel that. Don't get weird. Some, uh, there's weird people get weird about this stuff. Say the heart. This is a place in the heart. This is being pierced in the heart. This is being marked by God where you become sensitive to his presence and he could come in any form and you recognize when he's there. We know him, verse 17, and he will be in us. It's nothing closer than in. Matthew 7, 21 through 23, just write these down. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in Gnosko? Listen, did we not prophesy in Gnosko in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never had Gnosko with you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. This is what the Lord is, this is what the Lord describes as taking his name in vain. It's not just like a phrase that makes his name in vain. It's someone that uses intimate encounter type language devoid of it. It's many mistresses like I've talked about, but few wives. It's people that just want him to come and touch us and come and mark us, but we look like hell Monday through Saturday. It's people that, that just want to be able to, to say, oh, I walk in the power of Jesus Christ, yet you have no encounter with Jesus Christ, therefore using the name Jesus Christ in vain. And you can cast out demons in vain. You can heal the sick in vain. You can prophesy in vain. And he could say, no, 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 I don't know who you are. We've never been intimate together. When it says that he who knew no sin became sin, that we might become the righteousness of God, it's saying he who was never intimate with sin, he who had no gnosko with it, it was that power that gave him the right to give us his righteousness. Mistresses, we want, they, want the, they want the feeling, they want the touch, but they don't want to bear the name. It's not just being able, it's not just Oh, I am, you know, Jesus Christ was his first and last name. We're so shallow. This is why we have to be baptized in the name. Revelation says that we will have a mark one day on our foreheads with a name. What's it saying? That the mark of these people is intimacy. The mark of these people is I get around them and I feel God's intimacy. This I, I, I do want to read and then I promise I'm done. I'm actually, we're not doing that bad. All right. Based on normal services, like when Cito's here. All right. Luke 24, you can turn there if you want, or you can just listen. I, I want you to, if God's touching you, just let him do it. Don't even, you can listen back to this part. How many of you have read the story where the two men are on the road to Emmaus? And listen, it says, on the very day, verse 13, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about the things that had happened. And while they were talking, they were discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. Their oida, like the factual knowledge was kept from them. 
They didn't recognize him. He came in a different form. Verse 17, and he said to them, what is this conversation you are holding with each other as you walk? Now, these are disciples of his. These would be people that would know him at face value. And they stood looking sad. Then one of them named Cleopas answered, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he begins, listen, to open up the scriptures to them. It actually says that in verse 27, that he interpreted to them all. Everyone say all. Seven miles is a long walk. Imagine you get seven miles with God. Seven miles. Man, these two dudes are blessed. Seven miles with God and he interprets all of scripture to you. That's sick. All the scriptures and the things concerning himself. It says, so they drew near to the village to which they were going. He's testing them. I love this about God. He acted. Everyone say he acted. It's kind of manipulative. He's got this streak to him. Because he wants to see, are we as jealous of him as he is of us? Right? So he acts like, you think they'll invite me over? This is God. Not because he's insecure, but because he wants you that much. But he knows it's got to be real. It's got to be authentic. Otherwise, you'll just use him like everyone else does. It says, but they urged him. One translation says they constrained him. Imagine that. You can constrain God. Nope. You're staying with me. They urged him strongly saying, stay with us. Oh, Marcus with that guy. For it was toward the evening and the day was far spent. So he went to stay with them. What a gift. He took bread and he blessed it. He broke it and he gave it to them. Listen to verse 31. And their eyes were opened and they recognized him. And he vanished from their sight. That word recognized is epigonosco. Here's what it means. Epigonosco is someone that you've been intimate with. There's parts of them that only you can identify. It's, it actually, epigonosco means the mark upon that which you know intimately. You guys tracking with me? I'm trying to be careful with my language because I don't want some kid in the car being like, what does this mean? Because um, my kids only seem to hear the stuff I don't want them to hear. So anyway, <laughs> their eyes didn't recognize him. The oida, the knowledge of. But the Lord was about to take them deeper. And here's the actual pattern is stay with us. Just stay with us. And not till he, not till he sat at the table that they invited him to, did he break the bread? And it was the breaking of bread that they remembered the intimacy. And they said, did not our hearts burn? It's like they were feeling the gnosko. They were feeling it, but their eyes weren't comprehending. So how does all this tie together? Come on, as you stand your feet. Samuel left the system to go back to the high place to build a habitation for the presence of God with a company of prophets. 
And now I'm watching, listen, a generation that anybody with any ounce of discernment will be able to tell that they're done with the system and they're, they're leaving it because their hearts are burning. And they are filled with zeal, telling God you're having dinner with me tonight. I believe that this resolve, this hunger for gnosko, this complete opposite of the sons of Eli's who knew him not, Samuel is sleeping with God by an ark. Dang. He's, he's sleeping next to the presence of God and saying, this will be my home forever. And he leaves the system and he goes to a hill. And he finds a group of people, not a whole nation. He finds a group of people that create an environment that's conducive for raising kings. Because this boy knew the Lord. And I believe environments are coming where we're not gonna have to bind and loose. We're not gonna have to yell at devils, arm, arm, you know, put them in chokeholds and knee them in the face and scream at them. We're not gonna have to scream at sickness. We're not gonna have to punch babies like Smith Wigglesworth, God bless him. That's a real story. <laughs> James, amen. I'm not punching no babies, you know? People are gonna come inside of environments and they're gonna go, my ear just opened. They're gonna come inside of environments and they're gonna say, I don't know what happened to my kids, but he used to be a terror at home and peace has hit his life and because it's conducive for the raising of kings and we have to be willing to leave that marketing political spirit behind. That's trying to build something that becomes worthless in God's sight. And when it becomes worthless, you'll know it because in your heart, all you want to do is count. And it's something we have to be aware of. And our commitment today as a community, our commitment with whatever the future holds is that we have one thing on our mind. It's called knowing him and the power of his resurrection. Thank you again for joining us for this podcast. We pray that above all, your life was touched by his presence. If you're interested in learning more about the church or getting plugged in, you can visit us at www.risennation.org or follow us on social media to stay up to date with all that God is doing here. We love you guys. God bless.